Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 206, the Angst Cry for Happy LP. We love Angst on the show. We are big fans and champions of the band. We think they should be more well-known and loved. To make it even better, this time, we've got a special guest. You bet we've got Andy Caps on the show. Great to hear from Andy. Very interesting story, too. You know, not just the Angst story. So really looking forward to getting into that. But first, Brent, you better hit us with some spiels. Okay. Ryan, I'm going to take you to the Comp Zone. Excellent. Okay. Um, so there are a number of Velvet Underground tribute albums, such as the three-volume set on Imaginary Records. Which, yes. Which is all over the tree, by the way. Yes. Uh, the Screaming Trees, Doing What Goes On, Buffalo Tom, Lee Ronaldo, a bunch of other cool bands. There's a Castle Face Records uh, tribute. There's one on Burger of the White Light, White Heat album. There's an Aussie one called The Velvet Down Under with Bored, Cosmic Psychos, and more. But I want to talk about the one that came out last year on Verve Records called I'll Be Your Mirror, which is a start-to-finish tribute to the Velvet Underground and Nico album, which was also on Verve, by the way. Wow, man, you missed my favorite one. Which one? The Scenics. Do the Velvet Underground. You know that uh, Toronto punk band from the late 70s? They do a Velvet tribute album, yeah. Like a whole album? The whole thing, baby. Hmm. The the Scenics. Check it out. Okay. Uh, So this tribute, I guess, if you want to call it, well, it is a tribute, was apparently, he hated this word, but um, it was assembled by this guy, Hal Wilner. Um, Pretty legendary producer known as the man with the golden Rolodex. He was also a music coordinator for SNL for, for many years. If you remember when we had John Carruth on, he told us some insane stories about Hal Wilner, like just putting people together for these totally, you know, gonzo projects. Like the one I think John Carruth told us about was where he got asked to back up, uh, a bunch of people at this concert for Edgar Allan Poe, where Steve oh, Buscemi yeah. was <laughs> yeah, right. down on his knees holding a skull or whatever, right? Oh, that would be so deadly. Yeah, so Hal Wellner, he passed away a couple years ago in 2020, but he put this, this project together. So Michael Stipe is on here doing Sunday Morning. Uh, he also did the liner notes, by the way, Michael Stipe. Matt Berenger of The National does a cool interpretation of I'm Waiting for the Man. Sharon Von Netten, who's just a fantastic singer, does a perfect version of Femme Fatale. Andrew Bird, backed by a band called Lucius, I don't really know much about, doing a pretty remarkable Venus in Furs. Just kind of a perfect vehicle for Andrew Bird and his virtuoso violin playing. Mm. Like a cool take on John Cale's viola. Uh, Kurt Vile does a rock and psychedelic seven-minute version of Run, Run, Run. St. Vincent and Thomas Bartlett do an experimental reworking of All Tomorrow's Parties. Heroin, done by Thurston. So it's suitably noisy with Bobby Gillespie of Primal Scream on vocals. Uh, He has a book coming out, by the way, Bobby Gillespie. I, I mean, I'll be honest, other than it obviously being famous for its frank lyrics about drug use, I've never really understood the appeal of that song. Like it just, I find it boring. Yeah. I know that's probably sacrilege for some of our listeners, but it's just repetitive, you know. Uh, King Princess, an artist from Brooklyn that I'm not super familiar with, does There She Goes Again. 
Uh, Courtney Barnett, an Australian singer-songwriter who I mainly know from her album with Kurt Vile doing I'll Be Your Mirror. But now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, and if I'm being honest, the reason I checked this, this comp out in the first place. Fontaine's DC doing the Black Angels Death Song, which Ooh. is great. And, Ryan, they saved the best for last. It's Iggy Pop and Matt Sweeney doing European Sun. No drums in this version. It's Matt just pounding out a rhythm on this on that kind of repeating bass line. There's tons of guitar noise, both played by Matt and Iggy. And then, you know, the mighty Ig just doing his, his thing on top of it all. I believe they met during the post-pop depression either recording sessions or the live dates afterwards, because I'm pretty sure Matt Sweeney was in the band. He was, yeah. 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 And then, I won't detail it, Ryan, but the other project Hal was working on right before he passed was another one like this called Angel-Headed Hipster, The Songs of Mark Bolin and T-Rex. Nick Cave's on it, Lucinda Williams, King Khan, Perry Farrell, Todd Rundgren, David Johansson um, doing Bang a Gong. Joan Jett doing Jeepster, Elton John backed by U2, just to give you an idea of just how golden Hal Wilner's Rolodex was. So I know our listeners tune in for the obscure Canadian references, so I got to make sure to give you a bit more detail on that Scenics comp, because I actually have it on my desk right here. (laughs) (laughs) What a coincidence. Yeah, I was just listening to it. Uh, It's called How Does It Feel to Be Loved? The Scenics play The Velvet Underground. It's on... Dream Tower Records from 2007, recorded live in Toronto, 1977 to 1981. So there. There you go. Uh, And you mentioned Mark Bolin, right? And T-Rex. Didn't John Zorn do a Mark Bolin comp? I'm pretty sure he did, hey? Called Great Jewish Music, Mark Bolin. Yeah, yeah. John Zorn, it's on Zadok. So check out that one if you're uh, you're interested in a Mark Bolin and T-Rex comp as well. It has the Melvins on it, I think. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I'm kind of surprised I haven't heard of that, to be honest with you. Great Jewish music, it's I'm called, usually, I believe. Usually up on Zorn, so. Yeah. Okay, Rock Doc, Ryan. This is an older one. I haven't watched it since it came out in 2005, which when I say 2005, it doesn't seem that long ago, but, it, you know, that's 17 years ago. Oh, that's a long time yeah. ago, man. <laughs> so I, I kind of forgot I had this because... It's not on the shelf with all my other DVDs and Blu-rays because it came out in a regular CD jewel case. It's the Malfunction, the Andrew Wood story by Scott Barber. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. That CD's cool, by the way. It comes with a comp and some unreleased music from Andrew. The production on this is a bit dated, but the footage is amazing. They had insider access. The family was kind of involved in this. There's lots of home movie footage. Chris Cornell, Kim Thale, Stone Gossard, Jeff Ament. Bruce Fairweather, Greg Gilmore, Regan Hagar, Jack and Dino, lots of other friends and family, some great, pretty great live footage of Malfunction and Mother Love Bone, really a testament to, you know, what a lovable person Andy was, but also mm-hmm. deeply troubled. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is actually up on YouTube, I noticed, um, so everyone can, can see it. Uh, it's worth an hour and a half of your time for sure. It's just a really tragic story. There's no doubt when you watch this that Andrew Wood would have been a huge star. Would he have lived? Yeah. And it really drives home that Mother Lovebone were really right there with Jane's Addiction at the forefront of kind of bringing classic rock sounds into and metal into punk in, the, in that way. Mm. That, you know, really would have, I think, you know, had a huge impact on, on the mainstream as well. 
Very likely, yep. Yeah. Okay, real quickly, Ryan, I also have a podcast shout-out. Maybe I've talked about this before. Do it. Okay. It's The Devil's Music, a great show hosted by the Princess of Hollywood herself, Pleasant Gaiman. Pleasant is a first-wave LA punk rocker and was definitely, you know, queen of the scene. Booking clubs, writing for the LA Weekly, and, and creating zines, playing in bands like The Screaming Sirens. She's written a number of books, none of which I've read, but I will eventually. She also has an excellent spoken word release on New Alliance Records. She's had a number of cool guests on her show. Chip Kinman, Xavier Escovito, Paul Rubens. Ryan? Mm, cool. Yep. You know I like the Pee Wee. Yep. Alice Bag, Kid Congo, Terry Graham from Gun Club. Many more, but I'd like to highlight a recent interview with Jeff Drake of the Joneses. I won't go into too much detail, like you should really hear it for yourself, but he's had an interesting life, most famously spending time in a federal federal penitentiary for robbing a bank to feed his drug habit. The two are old friends, tons of hilarious stories. They first met when both bands were on the Hell Comes to Your House 2 comp, okay, uh, which they talk about in the interview. Jeff also mentions there's three new releases of Jones's archival material coming out this year along with his memoir on Hozak Books. Ah, nice. There you go, Ryan. A kind of a Mojack trifecta there. Yeah, good spiels. Thanks. What do you got? Brent, what I got is called Malignus Youth. Do you know this band? Uh, I've heard the name before. Malignus Youth. Yeah. Okay, I got to tell you about this. So I can't remember how I got into this band. I think it was maybe following a thread about the band Cardiacs, and someone said, hey, you like Cardiacs? Check out Malignus Youth. I can't believe that this is such a coincidence. I've been listening to the Cardiacs pretty much nonstop for the last two weeks. Oh, dude. Well, you need some Malignus Youth. Okay, so I do see a similarity between the Cardiacs singer and guitarist Tim Smith and Malignus Youth's guitarist and singer James Martin. But what are Malignus Youth? And let's see how many times we can say Malignus Youth during the spiel. <laughs> They are a hardcore band, hardcore punk band from Sierra Vista, Arizona, active 87 to 94. A real scene there. I don't know much about it, but I started digging into it and checking out some of the other bands. Seems like we've got a real Sierra Vista, Tucson scene, kind of like a PJD type scene. It looks really cool, and, and I'm just kind of getting into it. But but why did I get into Malignus Youth, right? I heard about them, I think, via the Cardiacs. But why did I like them when I checked them out? They sound like nothing I've heard before. Super complex, fast arrangements, thrashy, jazzy, complex harmonies, melodic, just super interesting music. They definitely started out like a more simplistic punk band, but by the end, they got into this amazing insanity and melody. Melodic bass, too, just love it. Also some classically structured compositions. I can't think of a band that they sound like. There's probably other bands out there that I just don't know about or that play their particular... They they definitely have a very uh, noticeable rhythmic style. They do like super fast, like... You know, bass uh, snare, kind of like that. I, the best I could come up with that you would probably know if I were to do a mashup is like AOD and Itch. Okay. If you put, put AOD and Itch together, those two bands, you might have Malignus Youth. I don't know. But why am I telling you about Malignus Youth? Not only are they a recommend, their stuff is impossible to get a hold of. And you know I want a physical copy. 
Their 1990 self-titled 7-inch goes for over 500 bucks Canadian on Discogs. There are no copies of their 1991 Crisis 7-inch on Discogs. Their 1992 More To It LP is over $200 Canadian on Discogs. Um, their 1998 Missa Brevis and Ephemeral CD over $75. This is all Canadian on Discogs. And there are no copies of their vinyl CD comp from 1999. And there's none on eBay and none on Amazon. But, you know, the Google machine did not let me down. I found a copy for sale on their Bandcamp of this, their Rialto double LP. It's recorded live in Tucson, 2014, released in 2020. Great package, splattered vinyl, ordered it. Uh, super excited for it to arrive. Did not listen to the download. You can go and order this now, Brent, but mine took forever to arrive. It took forever, hmm. but then it did. And I didn't just get the Rialto double LP. In the package was a note from James Martin, the guitarist and singer, that said as follows. Sorry for the late delivery. Included is an original press of the 1992 More To It LP, stickers, and a copy of the vinyl comp CD for your weight. I hope you enjoy. Kind regards, James Martin. Nice. Yeah, so such, like, this is this is one of those things that gives you faith in humanity almost, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not only uh, just a cool band to discover and get into, the band member... Um, threw me some extra physical copies, you know, which I love. Uh, James's other band, Pathos, you should also check out Brandt. They've got a record called Still Life and one called Pax. Well, they're both on disc, um, but also on the Youth Inc. Records imprint, which was kind of Malignus Youth's label for most, if not all, of their releases, I believe. Now, if you want to know more about Malignus Youth as well, you can go and find um, a video of the complete concert of this 2014 Rialto uh, double LP that has come out called Malignus Youth, The Genius and the Strange. And they just tear it up, Brandt. The footage is, footage is great. The songs are great. You got to check it out, especially if you were just into the Cardiacs this week. Yeah, well, man, you had me at a mashup of Inch and S-O-D. Itch and A-O-D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Okay. <laughs> so that's it, man. That's my spiel. I've been on a uh, a Tucson deep dive this week with Malignus Youth, loving it. And you should check it out. Everyone else should check it out. Right on, man. Ryan, is it time to understand angst? Yeah, man. The weather's fine. <laughs> History lesson, <laughs> part one. I'll one-up you every time you try and do it to me. I'm the one who does that. All right, man. So we love angst on the show like i said at the outset we have not had them on the show for a long time though almost 100 episodes we first had them on with the light life lp sst 54 where joseph pope was a guest then the mending wall lp sst 74 the mystery spot lp sst 111 and then now we are at this one again almost 100 episodes later cry for happy sst 206 and we've got andy joining the band Yep, and I think you missed SST64, the self-titled reissue of the Happy Squid Oh, EP. yeah, the Happy Squid one. You know what? You're right. Good call. Good With that awesome Bruce Liker jacket, yeah. too, on the OG version. Good call. And we saw him on SST43, the Blasting Concept, too. Mm, yeah. So 
you know, they were cranking them out every year. The self-titled EP was 83, Light Life was 85, Mending Wall 86, this one 87, or sorry, Mystery Spot 87, this one 88. But for the first time, Ryan, we're seeing a change to the lineup. Mm-hmm. Drummer Michael Hersey is out, Andy Caps is in. Brothers Joseph Pope and John E. Risk on vocals and bass, vocals and guitar respectively. They formed the band The Instance in Boulder, Colorado in 1978. You can hear them on the excellent scene comp Rocky Mountain Low. Yeah. The Colorado musical underground of the late 70s. Speaking of comps, hey. Yeah. Uh, and wasn't, was Jello on that comp? Jello went in a band in one of those comps or is he just yeah. from Colorado? He's no. on one of the, one of the bands, right? His earlier, his pre-DK's band. I can't remember the name of it, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So all the more reason to check out that comp. Yep. Uh, the brothers moved to San Francisco in 1980 and formed Angst with drummer Michael Hersey. After several national and European tours, we come to 1988. And this, their final album, Ryan. Now, what I have here, Ryan, is I, I have the press kit for this release, as is, you know, or was common practice with SST. All the reviews are, are only of the uh, mystery spot era or album but i'll give you some stuff from the front page here which is written by byron coley so ah i've got some whitaker when you say so okay bear with me on the byron coley because he gets pretty wordy faced with the threat of immediate death by dishonor few people could name a band from either san francisco or colorado that is unequivocally unreservedly great call it the curse of boucher if you will for the llama of tweet has referred to both places as home. I think he's talking about Eric about. Boucher. Jello. Jello, yeah. yeah. The quality yield of bands from these spots has been lamentably low grade. But hey, I'm here to praise music, not bury it. So I'm pleased as a penny to tell you that a combo exists whose work is so goddamn fine that they single handedly refute the ultimatum of the SFCO mediocrity continuum. This combo is angst. Based now and forever in the Bay Area, the trio's physical roots went through the Colorado mountain towns in which bassist Joseph Pope and guitarist John Risk's youth terror bands held sway in the late 70s. This punk brute thing was a passing adolescent spurt, however, and after a disgusting stint in the UK, (laughs) where they they beheld the birth of the dreaded two-tone phenomenon... Our dotty pair headed for the town that made Jello famous. Once settled, Risk and Pope started angst as something like a reaction to the formulaic powered dullness that's given SF such a tedious rep. They have since been through a tubster or two, but their flight into constructional meat gorgeousness has continued unabated for most of this decade, and its most glorious result is very near your hands right now. This disc is called Cry for Happy. Like its three immediate predecessors, Cry is a record with a texture as rich as the head on a bucket of Guinness Stout. Like its predecessors, it's also a big gulp taken in the name of progress. Hmm. The breadth of Angst's harmonic, melodic control has grown faster than Dan Quayle's asshole. (laughs) (laughs) In both terms of composition and performance. And... And hear the way that new drummer Andy Caps pervades a beep reminiscent of a favorite uncle slapping your face with a big rubber oar. 
Well, I say that's the way drummers are supposed to sound. And what is straddling that beat? Nothing less than a stroke load of hillbilly-veined pop greatness that's grown from the same barren soil that produced the Meat Puppet second LP. Soil that many dye-haired pansies would ignore in favor of imported loam. Soil that grows some of the best soul chaw that humans will ever know. Specifically taggable only by fools and turds, there is also a specter of deserted western dreams that hovers underneath much of angst's blood. I have seen pukes try and brand it with such disparately execrable terms as cowpunk or jangleism, but no one who's ever seen angst play would dare to accuse them of buying into a package the way bands like the charlatans or long riders did Ooh, them's fighting words yeah their songs just suggest the existence of a mythic west and by this i mean pioneers lacerated on the spokes of broken promises not chap wearing cow hands yippee-yay-yaying through the swinging doors of the long dark saloon the soul of america was fertilized by the blood of god fearing idiots prepared to ignore the natural order for an extra bowl of shit. These are the ghosts that haunt the lost frontier, and Angst knows they're there. It, it goes on, but you get the point. Indeed, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hit me with some Spaceman? Sure, man. Out of the SST catalog, again, we are on the cusp. It's like, you know, one week we've got the Spaceman, one week we don't these days. But we do for this one. Here's what it says. Angst, cry for happy. Tears of pleasure. A phrase that expresses the fine line between all emotions. Angst does the same with this brilliant collection of songs that offers a new view of old scenes. Includes The Weather's Fine, Only Fools, The Traditional Motherless Child, and Eight Others. SST 206, LP, Cassette, and Compact Disc. Yeah, so in this press kit, I'm, I'm not sure where the interview is reprinted from, it, but it was conducted with John, Joseph, and Andy by Tegan and Kathleen. That's the only credit that it gets. It looks like it's from a zine. They asked, do you feel you alienate certain audiences when you play music ranging from pop to hardcore and country to R&B? And John says, we play what we feel. We get a following of good people who like good music and don't care how we dress. The songs stand for themselves. Joseph says, it's easier if you say, hi, we have some stupid name that fits the fact that we can stand in a dusty field with cowboy boots, but that will get you to a shorter point faster and leave you emotionally bankrupt. Mm. Then they, they ask, what's it like to be on SST? And Joseph says, SST is into music. They sign bands because they like bands. They respect the bands they work with. They like what the band are doing. So obviously... If you're a band and your label says, we like what you're doing, do whatever you want. We're not going to tell you how to write songs. What other situation would you want to be in? It's ideal, really. And here's an interesting point, Ryan. Uh, they ask, do you know many other bands on SST? And John says, there was a time when we knew them all. Joseph says, we've been around the longest except for the Meat Puppets and maybe St. Vitus. We know Vitus, but not so well. We know the Meat Puppets really well, and John throws in slovenly. That got me thinking, like, yeah, these by this point, Angst were elder statesmen on the label. Yeah, it shows how much has changed just in two years on the label, right? Yeah. Like I said, Ryan, um, all reviews for Mystery Spot in here, um, all were glowing reviews, praising it as a leap forward. Lots of comparisons to R.E.M., 
violent yeah. femmes actually get mentioned a lot. I think that's probably just because of the acoustic guitar. Acoust- yeah, acoustic. X gets mentioned. Not sure I hear that. Yeah, me either. More than one reviewer compared them to an acoustic Husker Du. Not sure I hear that either. Hmm. One uh, writer for a zine called Uncle Fester Zine says, I've always considered angst the alternative answer to folk music with a barely dissonant, monotone, bang-bang rhythmic sound brought out very much in the production. Seems like at the time people were kind of really struggling for how to describe this music. And, yeah. I, and I think for a reason, uh, Angst were trailblazers in a way. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they never became as famous as people who are influenced by them. You know, we spoke about the Pixies way back a few times, I'm sure. But I bet R.E.M. was influenced by Angst, you know. And and then when R.E.M. comes along, they have to retroactively classify Angst. And how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. As I listened to this, I was just thinking, you know, Onks was just too far ahead of their time. Like, I can't believe they're not more revered by indie rock bands from the 90s. Like, mm-hmm. that, you don't ever see them get name-checked, and I feel like they were a huge, you know, indirect influence maybe on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. This is their fifth release that we get to cover on SST, and all of them are solid, too. This oh, yeah. one, This one doesn't let up at all, you know. Sometimes when a band is kind of on its last breath and they lose a drummer and they bring a drummer in, you know, it's not as strong of an album either. This is a super strong record. Yeah, I mean, I am not steeped in angst the way some people like our pal Jeff Shrek are. So i maybe not qualified to make this statement because I, you know, I'd have to go back and listen to those other records to remind myself. But I feel like this is probably my favorite angst record. Really? Yeah. It has some of my favorite songs. Yeah. For sure. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I think that the the writing on it is top notch on yeah. this record. Well, there's a good chance I would listen to those other ones and, and feel differently because I to be honest with you, I I don't know Angst well enough to have you know, remember even the songs on some of those records, but I really like this record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Put it that way. Should we kick it over to Andy? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Andy Caps. Andy, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here. All right, so we're going back to the Cry for Happy record, but before we do that, I want to go way back. I have it that you're originally from the New Jersey area. Is that right? It is, yeah. I grew up in uh, right outside New York City, about 10 miles outside of New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, when did, you, yeah. when did you start playing drums? I was pretty young. I actually started in third grade. The teacher came around and said, uh, you know, you can pick an instrument. And I chose drums at that point. And, uh, you know, my parents are actually pretty cool because they uh, gave me lessons, let me kind of really learn how to play. And, you know, my mother would be in the kitchen. I'd be with my buddies playing in the living room, and she just let us rock out. So it was was good. (laughs) Okay, when you say rock out, like I'm assuming you're fast forwarding a bit, like to your, you know, your teenage years. Exactly, exactly. I, you know, I was in like the high school or junior high school band, and then the high school band as well. Um, took lessons for years and years, and um, you know, I was also a stoner kid playing drums. So you know, started playing with with friends, and you know, as, as I got older. 
Mm-hmm. Did you play in like uh, a covers band or anything like that in high school, or were you doing original music? Um, a little bit of both, actually. You know, we, uh, I was actually even doing some recording. The very first recording I ever did was for a disco record, because that was in uh, you know the seventies, eighties time frame, and um, so uh, you know some of it was covers, you know, Jimi Hendrix kind of stuff, that kind of thing, and then uh, also some original as well. And after high school, when did you get out to San Francisco? Well, after high school, I actually moved to New Orleans, which was my big lesson in playing music. Um, I got really into funk and jazz down there. Uh, got to play with some really cool people. Um, George Porter from the Meters, some people from the Neville Brothers, oh, that wow. kind of stuff. And then a whole lot of jazz as well. So that was a kind of a really good lesson. There was a little bar called Benny's Bar, and I lived a few blocks away from that and the Neville brothers all lived right up around the corner from that. So oh, on wow. Sundays there'd be these big jam sessions and all these people would come and play. And I got to sit in on some of those. So that was, uh, there's so many good players down there. New Orleans is one of those places where you can pretty much go into any bar, walk in and see some music and you know, whatever type of music it is, it's usually really good players. Mm-hmm. So it was a really good place to be for eight years playing music. Uh, so you were in New Orleans for eight years. Yeah, oh, exactly. Wow. wow. When you yeah. when you said you were taking lessons at one point, or for many years, I think you said, like, were you taking, uh, like, were you learning jazz? Well, my original teacher was a jazz player. So, um, you know, he, he had me playing jazz, but he knew, you know, at whatever age I was, you know, he knew that that wasn't probably going to be my thing. So, you know, like one of the first, you know, some Zeppelin stuff that he had me, you know, playing to teaching yeah. me a little bit of everything, but he was a jazz player. So it definitely kind of got in there. When I got to New Orleans, I had some really good jazz teachers and some really good jazz players. This guy, Johnny Vidakovich, he's like a really, really, really good uh, New Orleans jazz drummer. Got mm-hmm. to study with him a little bit. Well, so many of those 70s rock drummers like Bill Ward and Ginger Baker are two that pop into my mind right off the bat are definitely have some jazz leanings. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was such an influence on stuff. Um, and it just carries over really well. So much of the 60s, too. A lot of the 60s drummers were, were jazz drummers and, you know, playing psychedelic rock. So mm-hmm. it, you know, fit in there pretty well. Right. Okay, so after New Orleans, then San Francisco? Exactly. Then I moved out to San Francisco. When I got out here, um, first band I played with was a band with... Um, the guitarist from the Dead Kennedys, East Bay Ray. Mm-hmm. I was in two different bands with him. One called The Cage, which kind of was kind of a bad art rock band, and then the other one uh, was a kind of a rock funk band called um, Scrapyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask and, about uh, Scrapyard because I'm aware of that one. I was not yeah. wa- aware of The Cage. I, if there's recorded material or output by The Cage, I'm unaware of it. Is that was there? There was a uh, single that we did. Uh, don't think it did very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if Ray ever put it out. You know, he was in charge of alternative alternative tentacles back then, mm-hmm. or at least very involved in it. And but I don't know if he put it out. Um, I don't really remember. The, but I know we did a recording, but I don't think much happened with it. The singer was. Um, she wasn't. She was uh, interesting. She was like a more of an artist than a singer, and uh, just didn't it didn't go over too well. How did you meet Ray? Um, I think I met him actually. There was a, a magazine out here called Bay Area Music, Bam. Yep. 
and uh, there'd be classified ads in the back, and I think he had a classified back there. I just answered it, and you know, he interviewed a whole bunch of drummers, and I got the gig. And so then I, you know, he asked me to play in that second band that he had, the that was Scrapyard. When I was playing in the Cage, it was right when um, it came out that the Dead Kennedys had split up. So it was that time frame. Were you into the Dead Kennedys and stuff like that by this point? Not, not really, actually. You know, I knew who they were, but it wasn't really my kind of thing. I was, you know, I was playing a lot of funk and jazz and I was heavily into that. And I liked some of that music, but it really wasn't my main, it wasn't really my main thing. Right. It, is that why you moved to San Francisco to to pursue music? It was actually, because, you know, living in New Orleans, there's some really good players there. And at the time you could play a lot in New Orleans, but trying to do anything more than that, like trying to get outside of New Orleans, it was very rare that that happened. Even bands like the Neville brothers, you know, they were just starting to get out of New Orleans and, you know, the meters, you know, had just done some touring and, and had some hits, but they ended up always back in New Orleans, just right. kind of playing there all the time. Didn't want to move to LA. It wasn't really my scene. And I'd been out to San Francisco. So you know, it's one of those, let's move to San Francisco and came out here. Do you think it's a matter of like, because of the tourism industry, you can almost have a career in music without leaving New Orleans? Uh, you could, but if you, if you don't mind playing covers, right, that really, right. I never really liked that. I always did that for money because as a drummer and a mercenary drummer, it was easy to kind of, you know, get called for a country gig or, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at just hearing a song and playing to it. So I did a lot of that for the money just to kind of survive. But in terms of playing and really playing music, I wanted to play originals. That was mm -hmm. more my thing. Okay. So why San Francisco? Why not LA or New York? I grew up outside New York and, you know, growing up there, I didn't want to go back there. I wanted to go get as far away as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, LA is just more the, the LA scene. You know, this wasn't my I don't know. I just didn't like LA. I liked the weather, but I didn't like the people as much. Right. San Francisco kind of had the right mix for me. Was the Onks connection also through BAM? No, I was actually at Guitar Center, and there was a poster on one of the boards there. And um, I spoke to Joseph, the bass player, and one of the singers. And, um, you know, I think it like their drummer had just quit, and I think it was like 10 days later they had a show at the Fillmore in San Francisco with uh, Sonic Youth and Firehose. And then a couple weeks after that, they were going to Europe for six weeks. And, you know, he, they were auditioning a lot of people. I think they had auditioned the drummer from Romeo Void, I think. And he, they wanted to get him, but he turned it down or couldn't do it or wanted too much money or something like that. So I was the next in line, and I've known him now for 30-plus years. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was that your first significant touring? It was, yeah. I did a little bit with Ray, a couple of little things, but nothing nothing major. Right. Did you know this was going to be the last Angst album at the time? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I didn't know Joseph and John that well at that point. You know, I got to know him pretty well touring, and we did a right. couple tours um, in Europe, and um, at least one, maybe two in the U.S., I can't remember now. And... Um, on that, I think it was on our very first tour in Europe. We were in uh, some city in Holland, and we needed directions to where we were going and rolled down the window, and there was this woman walking by, and I said, hey, you know, where is this club? And she ended up coming to the show, and that's where and John met her, and he ended up uh, 
moving to Holland uh-huh. to be with her, and that's kind of when everything ended. So. Oh, I see. Okay, <laughs> fate, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, the recording came after after the touring, or after the European tour, maybe. Yeah, after the first European tour, when we got back, they. You know, just John, we're talking about doing a record, so started working on some new songs, which ended up being Cry for Happy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we used to practice a lot. We played a lot and a lot of jamming. That was one of our things. We would just kind of sit down and play. And, you know, a lot of it kind of evolved out of that. Some of it evolved out of those jams, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You had a rehearsal space back in San Francisco? Exactly. How many nights a week do you think you jammed? Probably at least three or four times oh, wow. a week, at least. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot. We used to play fairly often. Yeah. <laughs> Do you recall, you know, your audition for the band? Um, a little bit, and I, it's funny because I, you know, they were their their old drummer. Um, I I didn't never met him. Or I did meet him once, but you know, I never I didn't really know him. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I guess he wasn't the steadiest of drummers in terms of groove and that kind of thing. And I was from all that funk I was playing, I was heavily into groove and they were used to a different kind of thing. And so the initial, the vibe wasn't as synced as I would want it to have been, but um, I did like some of the songs and they had some good stuff going on. So I was like, okay, I originally said to Joseph, well, you know, I'll do the show at the Fillmore, I'll do the gig and then I'm probably out, but that didn't end up happening. (laughs) (laughs) Free trip to Europe though. Yeah, exactly. It was good shows. There were good crowds and all that. So the band went over well in Europe, eh? Definitely in a big in a big way. Yeah. yeah, they really seemed to be craving, you know, that kind of music. I remember um, one guy in Holland saying, you know, why are there so many good bands from the U.S. coming over? And Holland, you know, you're on the dole. At the time, you were getting your two thousand guilders a month, so you can kind of screw around and you know dabble in music and all that but if you really wanted to play especially living in a place like san francisco you had to sacrifice a lot mm-hmm. to play all the time you know so you had to be really committed and i think that was part of it do you recall uh who you might have played with in europe like was it uh was it an sst package tour do you know um we did play with some sst bands i remember we played with das Damen, we played with dinosaur uh we actually played with um scream dave Grohl's first band yeah um, in Belgium, then also a lot of local bands, you know, that would open up for us just, you know, from whatever country we were in. Okay. So you get back to the U S you're, you're writing this material and then you go in to record with, uh, Vetus at, uh, Vetus Matare at Lyceum. Do you recall those sessions at all? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, he, in his place, the pool house in the back, I think the house that he lived in originally was owned by Morris Day from the time. And then he, he moved in there and the pool house was a recording studio. It was actually a nice studio. And, uh, we, I think we were down there for cry for happy for about two or three weeks. You know, we just kind of stayed at his place and, and recorded. Are you happy with the sound of the record? I just asked because we've been through a lot of these SST records. They seem to really vary in quality. I find the stuff Vetus records always sounds great, this one included, in my opinion. I totally agree. You know, we actually spent a fair amount of time. That was the nice thing about playing at his place is that, it, you know, it's, it was his house, so it wasn't like you were paying by the hour or anything. It was like, let's just get good sounds. And 
So we really tuned everything really well and really isolated everything well to get that, to have the control. And I was surprised because I hadn't listened to it in a little while and knowing I was going to talk to you, I popped it on and some good speakers. I was like, wow, this, you know, even though it's so old, it actually sounds pretty good. So I agree. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with the sound. Yeah. Well, especially for an SST record. Yep. You know, a lot. Well, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> to your point, some of that stuff was banged out pretty fast. Yeah. And that was one of the differences, I think, in this record and, and some of the previous Onks records is that, um, you know, it was very much, you know, let's get really good drum tracks, isolate them, get really good drum tracks and keep the others if everything is good. And then layer on top after that, where I know a lot of the other ones from what I understand from Joseph were very much almost recorded live, you know, with some overdubs and less, you know, less, less layers and all that. Mm -hmm. So I think it gave it that, those, that dynamics. And we've been playing enough together for, you know, after being on tour and then continuing to play all the time that we were pretty tight. So it made it pretty easy to, to knock everything out. Yeah. So most of this stuff was new. You weren't playing this on tour this material um you know we might have played some of it on on you know i don't remember the sequence whether it was after the second tour i think it was maybe after the second tour that we did this record and i think we had been playing some of it live if i remember right so you told me about the experience playing in europe and the great crowds and you know you hear a lot about how well bands were treated comparably <laughs> Uh, yep, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> how about how about touring the U.S.? Was you know did Onks do all right in the U.S.? Uh, not as good as in Europe. You know we we did okay, but like you're saying, it was not the uh, not the same kind of thing. Um, you know, in Europe, they really took care of you. They were really into it. They gave you good food. They gave you good hotels, and you know everything was like good sound systems and all that. And here it was kind of hit or miss. Yeah. Some shows were really good. Some not so good. Yeah, you know, it's weird. We're getting into the late 80s here. You tend to think of that as, you know, really the the rise of college rock, you know, where this kind of right. st stuff would be starting to get played on the radio more, and you're maybe playing at universities and things like that. But I'm guessing exactly. a lot of it was still punk clubs. Yeah, there definitely was some of that. You know, a lot of that, actually. And, you know, sometimes it was related to the radio station, the college radio station. It was like, you know, do an interview there and then, you know, go play some little club. I remember one place, I think it was like Stevens Point. You know, they pushed the pool tables aside <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, set up the the, the um, PA system. You know, you see the guys walking in with their pool cues, kind of looking over going, where's, you know, why is the band playing? Bunch of punk rock kids hanging out, listening to music, and then we're done, get our stuff out of there, and they push the pool tables back. There was a fair amount of that, too, you know. And also, you're not getting paid. <laughs> not very much, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You were all in, though, hey? You bought into the, the touring life? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was yeah. great. Yeah. You know, we had a good time, and, um, you know, I just love playing. It's always been my thing. That was, like, my main thing for years and years. So getting to play... You know, um, we would, we would jam pack our schedule too. We'd maybe have one day a week off at the most, mm. sometimes every day. So we just tried to play as much as possible. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about these tracks a little bit. Yeah. So we it starts off with time to understand, and I'm gonna just confirm uh, the vocalist on each of these songs, the lead vocalist. I'm pretty sure this is Joseph on vocals. It is Joseph. Yeah. And you're rocking a vibra slap on this one. 
<laughs> we were. That goes from my uh, my band days. I think we were looking for something, and we were going through uh, a bunch of uh, just like percussion stuff that that Vetus had around, and you know that was one of my big overdubs was the Viber Slap. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty pretty good. You caught that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I saw a few references to to the band, like trying to describe the sound, and it's crazy how many you know reviewers you know, called this cow punk, which I, which I, I, I really just don't hear that at all. I, I agree. I yeah. agree. Where, <laughs> where, like, where do you think that comes from? Um, there's a couple songs that are, that are definitely more country. So they probably just picked up on those. I would think yeah. not really knowing how to classify it. Otherwise, you know, at that time, I don't know if there was much of a, as much of a, like a, easy classification now it's just oh it's alternative and it just falls in that category but then people didn't really know what to call a lot of stuff yeah i i can i guess that's probably right yeah. yeah uh the next track is the weather's fine again joseph on vocals another band yep. I, I saw you compared to frequently is rem which i would say is probably a bit closer yeah i would definitely agree with that i don't think there was a necessarily a direct influence from them as far as i know from joseph and john's writing you know joseph was more into that whole music scene uh john was definitely more of a you know he had that country influence and um you know folk influence more so than than you know like punk rock or alternative kind of music and um so i think that kind of blend kind of led in that direction but i don't think there was really a a, that much of a direct influence from rem but you know a lot of people have said that Tell me about the songwriting process. Like, you know, you said you kind of bash these out in pro- in in practice. When, when you see uh, Pope Risk as a songwriting partnership, is that kind of like a Jagger Richards thing where it's, you know, they they're just that's a given that they're gonna get a co credit, or are they actually you know sitting down and writing these songs together? Um, it was a combination. I think a lot of the times, you know, like the songs that Joseph sang, you know, he would come up with the the main parts of it. And then, you know, John would add his guitar and then it would evolve from there, you know? So I think it was that, it was the kind of thing where it wasn't, you know, just came in and said, okay, it's, you know, D E F D E F G G G. It was more like, let's play for a little bit and see where this evolves. So the basis of it was either Joseph or John, and then it evolved with everybody playing in it. So it was more of that kind of thing. You know, there, and whoever wrote it, you know, had more of the influence on, you know, the direction it went or the feel of it, that kind of thing. Right. So it's not necessarily a, a complete song when they bring it in. Um, yeah, usually not. You know, I, and sometimes for me, it, it maybe was more so because those guys would play, um, you know, play together without me and come up with stuff. Hmm. But if it was stuff that, you know, I was involved in where, you know, it was basically new, like I think... One of the ones coming up, Mindfrau, is, you know, that funkier kind of thing. I think that came out of a jam originally because, you know, playing more funkier kind of stuff. So And so it just more evolved with all of us playing. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, well, since we're on the topic of that one, who's doing the vocals on that one? That one's John. Okay. His, uh, his ex was from Germany, and uh, he lived over in Germany for a while, so in Cologne, Germany. So he was fluent in German, and... I'm not sure why he sang that one in German, but <laughs> playing in Europe, it went over pretty well. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Do you know what it means? <laughs> Meinfrau means my woman or my girlfriend or my wife, I think, something mm-hmm. like that. 
Uh, the rest I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <But> <laughs> uh, Steve Moss we know from Universal Congress of, but I don't know who Curtis Sugarlips Willie is or Wild. <laughs> Wild. So that was um, we actually that was actually played by Vetus on a Kurtzweil keyboard. <laughs> ah. So instead of just saying Kurtzweil, that's where that's why it's Kurt. While because yeah. that was the brand of the keyboard. Okay, I'm not sure why we put Sugar Lips, but I think to make it sound more authentic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, with you being a funk drummer, that totally, or having that background, anyways, that it totally makes sense that that would come out of a out of a jam. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely not something we've seen on an angst record before. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Very true. Like that intro was, you know, just. You know, more you know, trying to trying to emulate kind of a funk thing, but also keep it a little bit more rock too. So. Do you think you would have ever played that song live with, you know, with a sax player? Um, we would have if there was somebody around, but there never was. We did play that song live a lot, but not not with a sax mm. player. That would have been good if yeah. we had somebody. Okay, going back a song, we've got "Only Fools" again with Joseph on vocals. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's, it's an interesting song. A bit of a moody rocker yeah exactly their styles are very distinct you know joseph tends to be you know more a little darker and, and like you said moodier john style tends to be um a little more folky almost yep. Yep. yeah i definitely noticed that too yeah uh the track motherless child that's john on vocals it is yep. it is and that was one of the ones i think actually we hadn't planned on doing that i think that was actually something we did in the studio while we were recording i think we had been messing around just you know jamming a little bit and that you know kind of came up and we just you know banged it out ended up putting it on the record Hmm. no idea like whose version of that song you would have you would have known i don't know i don't know whose that was you know it was john definitely was his thing mm-hmm. and adidas ended up playing keyboard on it because that that kind of organ kind of sound was kind of pretty prevalent on that track so yeah. i think Vetus yeah. played keyboard on that one uh and then we're flipping it over we've got a joseph song again i could never change your mind i really noticed on this one how much you and joseph lock in uh, as a rhythm section yeah he's a really good bass player he really is you know he's you it's interesting because like he's not like a slap funk kind of basis but he had pretty heavy groove and so that was the part where we would connect where he could you know lock in on a groove and just kind of keep it going but he was very melodic at the same time you know less um you know less of a like a funk groove bass player that more that melodic kind of thing but it was really you know he could lock in pretty well and you know once we kind of synced up that way it, it was actually it was a lot of fun playing together so mm-hmm. we haven't played together in a while but we probably should it's been a while, it's been a little too long yeah do you see joseph from time to time yeah, yeah all the time we're we're still really good friends oh that's so good i see him a couple times a week yeah. oh awesome 35 years i think something like that so. <laughs> that's good to hear uh the next song leaving's been easy uh that's john on vocals mm-hmm. what can you tell right. me about that song um, you know, it, it's more, more of a moodier song for John. Um, and there's some, you know, there was a little bit of tension, I think, you know, they're brothers and, 
you know, there's always tension between brothers. There was some that brotherly fighting that I would have to sit through when we were in the tour bus kind of thing. Yeah. That was kind of funny. But um, uh, there's a couple references in there, you know, I think about his relationship with Joseph and all that. So it's a little bit more, a little darker than a lot of his stuff, but um, I think a pretty so- strong song. I really like his vocals on that. Uh, then we've got She's Mine. That'll be another Joseph mm-hmm. song. Yeah. Got my big drum thing in the middle there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> my I, thing about that is that if you listen to that, at the you know, I, I liked what I did, but at the very end of coming out of it, I rush that part coming out of it. So every time I hear it, that's all I focus on. It's like, oh, I rush that. <laughs> There's no going back. That yeah. was the best take we had. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Long Road, that's John. Yep. That was very much the kind of stuff he really liked, that song. You know, it's kind of got that, you know, folkier, kind of heavier kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Lonesome Heart is dedicated to the meat puppets. Um, I... Now, when I hear this, it's kind of that ZZ Top style riff that you'd you'd hear on the Meat Puppets doing kind of around this time on the Huevos record. Uh, was it kind of yeah. like a, you know, a musical reference to the Meat Puppets, or was it just like, uh, you know, I'm I'm assuming you played with them a fair amount. Not when I was. I know Joseph did before me. You know, I mean, the, those guys did before me, but uh, and Joseph was good friends with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, personally, but not when I was playing with Ox. We didn't play with them. But yeah, it was just kind of a more of a kind of a shout out, I guess, to, you know, it was in that vein, mm-hmm. you know, being on the same label and all that and being good friends with them. It was kind of a, you know, ode to, to them, I guess. Yep. Uh, and then we've got My Dinner with Debbie, kind of a almost a little bit of humor maybe from John. <laughs> Definitely, there was a, a movie, my my dinner with Andre, I think mm-hmm. it was called. Mm-hmm. So I think it there was some reference. I can't remember the exact reference, but there was some reference to that in that song. So kind of a very, you know, kind of a happy, upbeat, you know, yeah. Kind of song. Yeah, and then speaking of humor, we've got the bonus track. <laughs> <laughs> Three lonesome boys. Yeah, who's that? <laughs> Who's that talking about Tallahassee and stuff? <laughs> we I don't know why we did that. I, somehow we were we were I don't know that we just I think we were having just having some fun doing something and uh, we kind of came up with that and Vitas said hey let's record that and so we stuck a mic in the room and I was that drum sound was me tapping on my knee mm-hmm. and um, you know John was singing the main vocals and me and Joseph were doing the the shout out part mm-hmm. so. okay <laughs> the cover art uh, i love all the angst cover art uh but this is probably my favorite mm-hmm. and joseph created it do you know do you know how um he did it by hand you know i remember when he was doing it you know he you know he i'm not you know i don't think he drew it specifically but i think he cut out different elements and, and created it by hand and had it printed from there this is you know, kind of before the digital time where everything was done on computers. But that was definitely, um, you know, his handiwork. Do you have the LP in front of you? I don't have the actual LP in front of me, no. I have. A, I do have the cover art, though. I mean, I have a, you know, a picture of it. Because I, I want to know who's who on the back cover. So I'm the one on top. Um, let me pull up the back cover. I think I'm on, I know I'm on top. I think that's got to be John in the middle, yeah. then. 
Yeah, I think so with Joseph on the bottom. Yeah. Okay, so what happened after this came out? Was there more touring, or was that the end of the band by the time this came out? No, we we toured for this record. That was uh, we definitely did a, a. I think two. I think I can't remember whether maybe maybe we did another European tour. So maybe we did the first European tour in one U.S. Then did the record, then went to Europe again, and then one more U.S. tour. And then it was after that second one that John ended up moving back to Holland, mm. or moving to Holland, and um, it kind of ended there. And, I, you know, I think part of it was, you know, Joseph and John kind of having different ideas um, of what they wanted to do musically going forward. You know, John was definitely leaning more towards, uh, you know, Johnny Cash, country, folk kind of um, direction. And, you know, Joseph wanted to keep the sound that, you know, these guys have been playing for so long going. Yeah. And, um, you know, a little bit of sibling rivalry there, too. So that, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> you would have stayed in the band, though? Um, I, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, me and Joseph continued to play. Um, we met up with a friend of our, our James, that's a friend now, James Tompkins, who we started a band called Sunhouse, hmm. did a recording for that. And, uh, you know, we continued to play for a while after that. Mm. What does that band sound like? Is it, like? Has that been released? I don't think it was ever released. I will, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It was released we, you know, as a, like back then a cassette. I don't know if we ever even did a CD. Mm. I can't remember now. But, um, it, you know, it's a, very much in the vein of Joseph's. You know, Joseph was more focused on Joseph's style of music, and he was the main songwriter, so it was, you know, kind of geared around that. It was a four-piece instead of a three-piece interesting it was, it was pretty good how did this record do like did it get good reviews it did actually i remember it, it did all right in the college radio charts you know it did pretty good the reviews more i think um the ones i've seen more so have come out you know kind of long after when the record came out but you know i, I guess for an sst record it did okay you know not phenomenal but it did, i think it did pretty good okay so what did you do after you know, the Sunhouse project. Um, I moved on to just playing with a lot of different types of bands, um, a little more touring, um, definitely did a lot of recording. I kind of started focusing more on that. And um, so I ended up in the studio a lot for, you know, just all different kinds of music and played with some good people. I played with a guy by the name of David Denny, who was a guitar player from the Steve Miller band, mm -hmm. uh, a band called the Diesel Harmonics. I didn't do the recording on that. It was... Um, forget his name the drummer from the tubes ended up doing the recording um but i played in that band for a while and you know just different kinds of bands like that so right. then eventually uh you know started some other projects and kind of put music on the back burner while i did some other things for a while mm -hmm. are you still playing drums today yeah i still play not as much as i would like to but i definitely still play i have an electronic kit at my house and mostly play that but occasionally I do play live, mm -hmm. which is kind of fun. Nothing with Joseph, though? Not for a long time. Yeah. You know, we haven't played together. We hang out all the time, but we don't really play together very much. What do you do when you hang out? We talk about it. <laughs> Eat, drink, <Yeah. laughs> talk. <laughs> go see music. We go see music fairly often together. But these days, you know, yeah. now that things are opening up a little bit. Yeah, you'll go see, you'll go see bands and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Exactly. Yeah. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks yeah. for doing this. All right. 
So cool to hear from Andy. Andy brings the funk on this record too, hey? Which oh, is yeah. which yeah. is definitely a new vibe, um, I would say, for Angst. But then there's also interesting to hear his thoughts about influences or reference to bands like Me Puppets and ZZ Top, which we'll get into during History Lesson Part 2, I'm sure. Yeah, playing music in eight for eight years in New Orleans definitely would have honed his chops big time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. A few things he mentions, Ryan, uh, the band Cage, uh, which he describes as a bad art art rock band, I think, <laughs> that he had with East Bay Ray. Uh, he told me they recorded at Dancing Dog Studios, which is a studio the Counting Crows owned. He sent me a track called Good Day for a Walk. It's interesting, definitely arty, keyboard heavy. Banna Witt is the vocalist, and that is all I could find about Cage. It's spelt with a K, by the way. By the way, K-A-G-E. Uh, he also sent me two tracks by he and Joseph's band Sunhouse, and that's spelled S-U-N-H-O-U-S-E, one word. Mm. Uh, Carnival, Carnival of Pleasure and Grey Heart. Both of these songs just rule so hard. Carnival of Pleasure is a total epic, like a more rocked-up angst, a bit psychedelic. Uh, the lead guitarist totally melts frets, Dennis Tech style. Both songs with, uh, you know, Joseph's singular voice. Angst fans would totally shit themselves over an unreleased Sunhouse album, for sure. This record, Ryan, uh, as we've seen lately, with some other releases recorded by Vetus Matare at Lyceum Sound in L.A., as you mentioned in the Whitaker Spiel, came out on LP, CD, and cassette in 1988. Should we go through the tracks? Yeah. History Lesson, Part 2. All right, Ryan, all songs written by Pope Risk, except for one, which we'll get to when we go through these, gets us started with Time to Understand. That bass tone just grabs you right off the bat. Yeah. And then when the song kicks in, the, the acoustic kind of counter melody to the bass. Absolutely love Joyce, Joseph's voice. Uh, you know, you've got those blood harmonies with John. Or is it Joseph harmonizing with himself? through overdubbing it's kind of hard to tell mm. they do have a very similar vocal quality yeah one's more raspier than the other yeah. at times i had the almost the exact same thing though i, I wrote down you know what a great walking bass line on this uh, and with the the acoustic treatment love the key changes on this too there's a great key change in it that just hooks you in yeah great lyrics joseph's delivery is perfect the Joker wears a mask and the Jester wears a hat while the King lies inside naked and fat. He waves his arm. He shows his ring. I think you better hurry and kiss it. It's the latest thing. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, track two, The Weather's Fine. This is a really nice song. So catchy. Yeah. John's playing with that picked main riff, the, the haunting lyric that kind of comes in par panned hard left, the all the time part. Nice piece of production, the way they did that. Again, you know, when I'm listening to this, I'm just thinking that they're too far ahead of their time. Yeah, It's almost like they should have moved to uh, Athens yeah. or, something, or something, right? Like if they had to move to Athens at the right time, yeah, you, never, you never know. Yep. Okay, Only Fools. I think in the interview I call this a moody rocker, and it really is. Jo mm -hmm. Joseph's vocal has a rasp to it on this one that that you know he normally doesn't have. It works really well. 
killer harmonies again. Structurally, it's a bit of an odd song. It's a waltz. Yeah. The chorus is almost hidden, like it's not a super obvious chorus. Yeah. There's some really, really well-utilized delay on the vocals, too, that give it that haunting vibe even more. Yeah. Track four, Meine Frau. Uh, This is the one that has Vetus on the Kurzweil keyboard. Definitely a passable trumpet sound. (laughs) (laughs) Passable trumpet. I'm guessing maybe Vetus was the Steve Moss connection. Mm. Or or maybe Ankh's played with UCO. Uh, And he gets to show off his his funk chops on this one. It's a bit of out out of place on the record, maybe. Yeah, I would, you know, this is the one, if I'm going to skip a track, this is the one I would skip. Yeah. Okay, track five, Motherless Child, also sometimes known as Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. It's a traditional spiritual dating back to the slavery era in the U.S. It's been recorded and performed many times by all kinds of artists. Harry Belafonte, Pete Seeger, Wishbone Ash, Prince often performed it live. Boney M recorded a disco version of it. That's too bad. Yeah. (laughs) Are you serious? That's what I read, yeah. Gross. Yeah. Unlike, though, Ryan, the somewhat ubiquitous Smokestack Lightning cover we recently heard from Soundgarden and the All Your Love cover on the UCO album Mm -hmm. from a few weeks back. This one really works for me. Oh, yeah. Thanks in no small part to Vetus's keys. It sounds like, you know it's a cover, but it sounds like an angst track. It fits on the album like a glove. It fits better than Meine Frau for me. Yeah. Yeah, the drums sound really huge on this one. Joseph's hypnotic bass groove is just right in the pocket. Uh, And as much as I love Joseph's vocals, John E. Risk totally owns this song. Mm -hmm. All right, flipping it over with I Could Never Change Your Mind. Interesting drum pattern in the verses. Like, I like the effect it creates with Joseph's playing to the drums. He and Andy are really locked in on this one. Nothing against Michael Hersey as a drummer, but when you've got someone, someone as clearly skilled as Andy behind the kit, you can really pull stuff like this off. Yeah, yeah, Andy's got some chops for sure this is the one too when i when i was listening to it over and over during the week i'm like you know for all the people that call angst a a jangle band this is like the song that they think of i'm sure yeah track two side two leaving's been easy and so i sit and smoke and i burn and then they lay and toss and turn and if i should ever return it would be because I never learn. Yeah, this song is heavy, man, hey? Yeah. John just delivering the vocals with total conviction. Mm-hmm. It's sullen, slow, contemplative. This this one gives you the hair standing up. Yeah. She's Mine is the next song. This is what I mean. This is 90s indie rock personified. Like, they would have fit right in with a band like Built to Spill, Uh, to me, or maybe like Afghan wigs or something. Mm -hmm. Like when I listen to this song, especially that midsection with that, you know, thundering drum work on the toms, I just, you know, if they would have hung on maybe just a little bit longer, they probably would have signed to a major label and would Mm -hmm. maybe still even be going today on an indie like Merge or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Merge would be a great label to reissue this stuff. Yeah, yeah. For sure. If they could ever get the uh, the rights, I don't, I'm 
I don't know if they have it, but it is another driving minor chord kind of pop song that just really personifies that era of college rock. And so many bands did this after Angst. Yeah. Well, the problem with getting a lot of this stuff is you need someone in the band to really drive it. And unfortunately, if I'm remembering right, um, when we talked to Joseph, he he had said that he and John are not mm-hmm. in, not in in not connected with each other. So that's probably one of the roadblocks to to getting this out. Yeah. Okay, track four, long road. I'm packing a bag, just taking what I need. Gonna go where I go. Gonna do what I know. Gonna say what I mean. A bit of Dylan in John's delivery on this one. Mm. Yeah. This is the track that I think people think of when they say Angst has a Meat Puppets sound. This this sounds like the pups to me. Yeah. So does the next one, though. Lonesome Heart, which is the one that's dedicated to the Meat Puppets. Definitely that <laughs> ZZ Top influence that yeah. they were exploring yeah. on Huevos. Yeah. Joseph can pull a rocker off like this one vocally. No sweat. Mm-hmm. And then we end, well, we don't end, end, but the last full song is My Dinner with Debbie, a bit of a country rocker from John. He definitely leaned a bit more in this direction. It's a cool way way to end the record. Yeah, it's got a, a swung kind of shuffle beat. Again, some great bass runs on this one that just keeps it driving. Love it. Yeah. Except, Ryan, the record's not over. We have the bonus track. Right. <laughs> a bit of country picking. You know, and it says order now and get this bonus track. This is the one where, you know, it's three lonesome boys out on the road. Yeah. It's just a short 30 second burst. It's like the, uh, the hidden track at the end of a CD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you know, people should seek this out. Hopefully it's up on YouTube. I'm not sure. So yeah, I don't know, Ryan, like. Like I said, I wouldn't feel confident making the claim definitively that that this is my favorite, but uh, it's up there. Yeah. You? Oh yeah, it's up there, and the packaging is great too. Like it is a a a very excellent piece of artwork on the cover that totally fits the sound and vibe of this record. Even the the reversed black and white imagery of the band on the back yeah. is just killer. I unfortunately have a cutout. That's the only version I have um, of this record. But even the the texture on the jacket, it, it almost has a, a Liker-esque type of feel to it. It's mm. got some gold print on it. It kind of, it has that letterpress feel. It looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph created the art. It's That's one thing I can say for sure. It's my favorite artwork on an Angst record. And it, all, right. the, all the artwork's great. Yeah, it's on this great. Ong stuff. Uh, love the yellow, green, and red on black on the front. The color scheme works really well. It's more like gold, though, I think. Uh, love that classic Angst logo with the underscore G right in the middle. The Bobby Neal Adams photos on the back are great. Johnny Risk just looking cool as fuck in his jean jacket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Definitely three lonesome boys there, man. Yeah. Yeah, does have an insert as well with with lyrics. Yeah, the insert reproduces that rose drawing. 
Yeah. How about some dead wax, Ryan? Yes, we do have some dead wax on this one, thankfully. Here we go. So side one, let me find it. It's really tiny. Side one, yeah, right. Side one says, hi, mom. Okay. Side two says, hi, dad. (laughs) That's it. Okay. I guess we're over to the ballot result then. Yeah. Ballot result. I'm curious to hear your picks, Ryan, this week. Uh, My top two would be Only Fools or Leaving's Been Easy. Really? Yeah, because I just, they, uh, I don't know. There's just so much angst in those tracks, and Mm. I was digging them hard. There's a ton of other great songs, though, so take it away. Well, I picked Time to Understand, The Weather's Fine, and She's Mine. No way. I think this no is, no overlap. No overlap. This never wow. happens. Wow. What to be, what to be done? Oh, I don't know, man. I mean, those are all great ones. What was okay? So, what did we pick last week for the Descendants? Paul uh, Raker. What's a good one to like? I want something. I want something that's really different. So maybe not up tempo like the Descendants. Pick, I think we picked Cheer. Yeah, so I want to. I want. Yeah, I'm gonna go with only fools or leaving's been easy. Because man, it's. I don't want to. I don't want to go up tempo after a Descendants track on okay. a comp date. We'll pick one then. Leaving's been easy. Okay. Yeah, that one. You know, if it if it makes your hair stand up, there's something to it. Done deal. Yeah. Check this record out, everybody. It's a good one. And hey, Ryan, thanks to Andy for being on the show. Oh, totally. I wish we could cover more angst, but uh, maybe we'll have an excuse to talk about them again. So awesome that he and Joseph still hang out. I know, right? Yeah. That's so cool. And check out that Scrapyard record that Andy's on too, that's on Alternative Tentacles. Or actually, don't. Wait. Don't check that one out until we get to it when we do our Alternative Tentacles podcast. Album by album podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, if you want to go on like, you know, East Bay Ray side projects, check out Scrapyard, Live at the Witch Trials, but don't. 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 Wait. <laughs> when Brant and I are in our 70s and doing the AT podcast, yeah. th- then you can check it out. All right. Ryan, what's next week? Oh, can't wait to get into this one, Brant. Next week, it's SST 207, the Treacherous Jaywalkers Good Medicine LP. And we've got a special guest. You bet James Fenton's on the show right on hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content if you like what we do and want to support the podcast the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show subscribing rating and reviewing on itunes is also appreciated we love hearing your opinions corrections and feedback so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com thanks again for all the support and we hope to see you next week